proof of work and DeFi report, but this time, Michael, you got a cap and I need one of these caps. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's great to be back, Shiv. Uh, we got some swag for the first time. The DeFi report officially has uh, some hats now, thanks to my girlfriend. That's awesome, man. Like, when are you posting me one? Uh, very <laughs> soon. Uh, how, about, how about a week or so? Give me a week. Uh, we'll see. We'll get her awesome. on the case. Awesome. I look forward to that. Yeah, it's a great looking cab. I look forward to more DeFi report merches as well, man. I think it's a good brand and uh, what you write is amazing. And I guess uh, today the episode is the deep dive on Ethereum that we're going to do. And you've created an amazing Ethereum investment framework uh, doing some deep dive on-chain analysis. I'm keen to get your take on it. And that's why I thank you that you have come again for another episode for this and uh like i'm not going to talk much about it i'll let you do the talking but i got a lot of questions about this ethereum investment framework that you've created very comprehensive i've read it and i've given you off the record my views about it but it's mostly positive it's almost all positive you've written this from a first principles perspective and i'm keen to understand that what inspired you to do this bottoms up data driven approach to analyzing uh, ethereum and crypto networks it's uh yeah that's a great question it's uh it's it's a long story i'll try to make it as short as possible um but i think you know going back to like the beginnings of my career and spending you know 12 years doing accounting and finance i think when i first started to study public blockchains i really the, the real breakthrough for me was seeing them as full shared ledgers um and my accounting brain as somebody who understands accounting and reconciliation and all the challenges with that um it was a kind of a, immediately clicked with me that if you have this shared secure global ledger that everybody can utilize that's a really really big deal for the internet um so that's kind of where it started um as i started to explore public blockchains and all this innovation, um, the that's kind of turning point was when we had some data providers coming out and you could start to get glean some insights from what was happening on chain because these are public networks. The data is out there, it's available, it's it's fully transparent. So you have providers like Token Terminal and Glassnode that I work with, and uh, I can get some really deep insights onto what's happening on chain, which then starts to form uh, inform a thesis around what is the ultimate direction of all of these public blockchains, these protocols that are built on top of them, um, which ones are starting to accrue network effects, what does that mean long term, um, and so. I think we're at like a really critical juncture uh, right now in terms of like the sort of deployment phase of public blockchains. And there's a fantastic book called Technical Revolutions and Financial Capital that I recommend people check out. Carlotta Perez has gone through this, essentially every major technical innovation throughout history, and they all follow a very similar pattern. And so I think we are at the cusp of sort of moving into the deployment phase for public blockchains, and we can get into some of that. Um, and as I've done this sort of analysis, it's become quite clear to me that Ethereum has really, really, really strong network effects. And we'll get into some of that in this conversation. But that's really what's kind of um, sparked the reason that I created the Ethereum investment framework. Yeah. As you know, we're currently in the midst of the crypto winter, Bitcoin halving next year. But still, at the moment, we still have got some sideline movement with crypto. What made now the right time to write and release this uh, investment framework report that you've created? Yeah, so this might be a good time. I'm going to pull up uh, my slide here. Okay, so why now? I think that's that's a, a fantastic question, Shiv. Like, why now? Why is this the, the right time? Why am I releasing this Ethereum investment framework at this, this current juncture? And there's there's a, a lot of factors that are playing into that. Um, a few of them I had just mentioned. You know, this book, Technical Revolutions in Financial Capital. I've read it multiple times. I highly recommend people read it. There's almost like this eerie um, sort of alignment with what she talks about with every other past major innovation and what I'm observing happening within blockchains, crypto. Um, it, the parallels are just just uncanny uh, to to what I'm seeing. And in this this framework that Carlotta Perez lays out in her book. There's phases to the introduction of, you know, really disruptive technologies. 
And sure. we are we are currently um, going through sort of the the second uh, phase. It kind of kicks off with sort of like a, a frenzy, and I would say that the frenzy on public blockchains started in the 2016 2017 era when we had the the ICO boom uh, on yeah. Ethereum, and then you had a, a number of other layer one blockchains and other ecosystems that were spawned uh, kind of from this period between I would say 2017 all the way through I would say 2021, yeah. um, and that's kind of the the, the frenzy phase, typically during that phase, you Good. have financial capital that comes into a new technology as well. And typically the market just like completely overshoots the actual development of the technology in those early years. And this is exactly what we've seen um, on within the blockchain space. So, you know, I think there's a great quote from uh, Bill Gates, where he mentions you know, people typically overestimate uh, what can be done in two years and yeah. completely underestimate what can get done in 10 years. Right. And so you see like these like you, you see this in, in crypto where there's like a new this new app comes out or there's like this new breakthrough and the market like completely overshoots that. Right. We start to price things just completely detached from reality. Um, and then you tend to get, a, you know, you have a lot of leverage in the system. You tend to get a collapse uh, after that, and so like this is this has been playing out in crypto, but it's actually played out in every single past innovation as well. So I think that's that's critical to understand, and we are sort of like coming out of this phase in crypto. And one of the signals uh, of this is what we saw during 2022, which yeah. is the sort of cleansing of the space. And again, this has happened every past innovation where yeah. you sort of see the frauds uh, are revealed and you start to see, um, you know, you, you start to see this kind of wipe out, the leverage is wiped out, the space is cleansed out, and then policymakers and regulators step in. And sure. what are we what are we starting to see? Um, we're starting to see, you know, we have this ripple court case uh, that went through and now that I believe that's a forcing function for for Congress to step in and then create new rules and regulations, protect investors, allow entrepreneurs to have clear rules on what they can build. As that starts to play out, you get this like shared consensus about what is the way forward. So I think yeah. we are nearing nearing that moment. We're seeing regulation pass in Europe. We're seeing it all around the world. I think the U.S. is is coming. We're, we're sort of a laggard there, but I think it's coming. So that's another factor um, playing into this. We had the BlackRock uh, ETF, um, you know, that they've that they've applied for that hasn't been approved yet, but it's another signal in the market of like we're getting we're, we're nearing this sort of tipping point. Um, and then when you look at just like the Ethereum ecosystem itself what what i'm seeing is just execution on on the roadmap right when you look at like uh what's happening with the merge which is like i think a lot of people will say is one of the most uh important breakthroughs in open source computing history uh would to, be able to, that. to be able to merge the consensus from proof of work to proof of stake uh without missing a block uh it's almost like building an engine or rebuilding an engine of a plane uh while it's in mid-flight so the ability to execute on this roadmap we're seeing uh layer two scaling solutions come into the space as well. Um, we're seeing privacy being introduced on public blockchains. Um, so all of these factors are sort of playing into this. And then when you start to look at Ethereum itself and you compare that ecosystem to the other layer one uh, projects, you can start to like parse out like what's really going on here. Is there a network effect that has already sort of taken hold that is going to be really, really hard for a competing network to to overcome? So I'll pause there. That was that was a mouthful, but that's kind yeah. of uh, some of the factors into like the, the why now piece of this. Got it. So look, I need to go back to my, I used to maintain a blog once. Uh, this is way back, uh, I think so a couple of years ago. You said something that reminded me of something that I wrote. And I'm just going to quickly go there and search for that, hoping that I can find that blog. Just give me a sec. Good blog. I'm so glad that we've got an editor. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. <laughs> <laughs> takes all the pressure off right i know right okay got it i wrote this actually wow so i wrote this on 21st of july 2021 and uh i'll not read out the entire blog but basically the title of that was nothing important has ever been built without irrational exuberance and there's an old story about the wright brothers who built and flew their first powered airplane at kitty hawk on december 17 1903 before taking off they asked each other 
other how it would feel about flying for 10 seconds or a minute. One brother said that if he just had a few more days to practice before takeoff, he was confident that he'd be able to stay up in the air for an hour or more. It took off anyway, and the rest is history. So yeah, like, it's easy to understand the sense of uncertainty that governed the Wright brothers' lives. They had no way to test their imaginary plane on Earth. They could only fly for short distances by taking off from a ship into a stiff wind, and then they could only stay aloft for short times. But yeah, like, uh, one of the most critical education that I took out from it was that nothing important has ever been built without irrational exuberance. And that was the same thing in the dot 2000.com bubble. When everybody was saying, you know, the internet, like, that was irrational exuberance in the 2000-2001 Nasdaq stock market. But we know now how influential that period was in shaping up the internet that we know of now. Yeah, I totally agree with you that, uh, you know, this whole irrational exuberance and then the cleansing that happens, it's a natural evolution, which is nothing new when you look at the history of human innovation. It's just another uh, medium, which is in the form of cryptocurrency that we are experiencing this again as a pattern. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, that's a great, uh, I love what you wrote there because it's, it, that's this is one of the really important things to me for anybody who's who's looking at getting involved with crypto or um, like me from as like an analyst perspective, like understanding history on this is incredibly, incredibly important. Like history repeats because of human behavior, right? So we, when we go through history, uh, we introduce new technologies and everything changes around us. But the core yeah. principles don't change because of human human behavior. There's no technology upgrade to human behavior. Right. Yeah. That, that stays the same, but everything else is, is upgrading. And so That's you true. tend to get the same behaviors. The, I love the what uh, you said out there. There is no yeah. technology upgrade to human behavior. Exactly. So yeah. um, and, and I love what you said there with the, the irrational exuberance, Shiv, um, because I think people tend to look at bubbles as if like a bubble is like a bad thing. And yeah. what actually a bubble, a, people should be looking at bubbles and saying, okay, something really important is happening here. Yes, the market is probably overshooting the, the it in the short term, but that doesn't mean the market is overshooting it in the long term, exactly. right? And that's that's coming back to that Bill Gates quote where, yes, most people will... will correctly identify that something really important is happening, but they'll overshoot it in the short run. And so we sort of overestimate what can happen in two years and underestimate and, you know, over a longer period, like 10 years. But this is the sort of framework that Carlotta Perez lays out in her book. And in my view, we are, we went through this eruption and frenzy phase. And this is, this is really the 2016 to 2021 period right now. So that's how I view it, at least. And we are starting to enter this turning point period. And, that, and the signals for that are that Congress in the United States is getting very involved uh, with this space. We've seen these, court, these cases go to, go to court. Um, and as, as this starts to happen, we get new laws, we get regulations, and the market starts to coalesce around a shared view of, the, of where the future state is going. As that plays out, you, start, you hit an S-curve. This is where the S-curve happens coming out of regulation. Right. And so this to me is one of the reasons that this is this is really like important to understand. Um, and this is played out re repeatedly with almost every technology. And it's it's like I said, it's almost eerie, um, you know, studying these concepts and then applying them to what you see uh, happening today with with crypto. So just playing the devil's advocate over here. To address the why now, you think that the uh, reason why uh, this report and the release of this report is important now is because crypto as an industry is maturing, but we know that because the crypto industry of 2017 was more matured than the crypto industry of 2013. So as a result of the evolution that we see in innovation that we've spoken about, uh, the crypto industry of 2022-2023 is more mature than the crypto industry of 2017-2018. However, correct me if I'm wrong, the message that you're pointing out is that the maturity of the industry that we are progressing towards now is enough to be considered a turning point for the industry that it could be considered as a legitimate business with l very few skeptics anymore who would consider these instruments as Ponzi schemes. Like what you're saying is that maybe after next year and once BlackRock comes in and Congress creates these frameworks, there would be an end of debate that Bitcoin or Ethereum are Ponzi assets. Yes, I, I, that's nearing. We're not there. We're not there. And that's why, to me, that's why this is so important to have this discussion now. Because yeah. the, I would say the market consensus is not that today. Yeah. But if you if you go to first principles yes. and you look at all of this stuff and you look at the fact that Ernst & Young 
is 100% exactly. committed to the Ethereum network, and that's and, and what that means, then you can see that okay, that you can see a wave coming, and, yeah. and if you go and we can go into this later, um, there are many many institutions and enterprises that have focused on private blockchains to date. Um, they are they are offsides, and we can get into that, uh, but they're going to realize they're offsides after this this regulatory clarity starts to come and mm -hmm. that that's where the s curve starts to happen and so we are we're probably a year or two outside of that right now and that's why this period is so important so for people out there who still think that you know bitcoin ethereum is a ponzi scheme and you know one of the most common retaliation that they say is that there, there is no cash flow like there are there are no quantitative ways to measure the value of ethereum blockchain and i know that you dig deep to on-chain analysis and you're covered this within the investment framework as well. Can you quickly pull up those pages of the investment framework to showcase people that yes, you can quantitatively measure Ethereum because it does generate fees and cash flow as well. So would love for you to for us uh, for you to walk us through that section of Ethereum for us, uh, Michael. 100%. Yeah. And thanks again for the question. Um, so I'll just pull up. This is just, you know, a, a very simple view of like the on-chain financials for Ethereum. And you're right. Like I still see uh, people in the market um, saying that, you know, you can't quantify these things because there's because we don't have cash flows. It's, it's just uh, it's un it's 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 not a correct statement to hear that because I'm, I'm looking at the data online uh, on chain um, and yeah this is just a very simple view of like what what's happening on chain so that top line the total revenue that is user transaction fees right so um, in Q1 of 23 Ethereum produced about 464 million dollars of user transaction fees on chain. That number jumped up in, in Q2 of 23 to 846 million dollars, right? So the thing, th this is really critical for people to realize. Like, there's just a lot of people that are using uh, the chain and they're paying for computational resources to do that, and that's the product that Ethereum sells is computational resources. People people call that block space as well, but that's the product that's being sold by the Ethereum network. Now the the business model is different because those those fees are being paid to a distributed set of service providers that are running the software to secure the Ethereum network and are also recording all of the economic activity uh, to maintain that global ledger, right? So they're being paid to do that, and those user fees. Um, are supporting uh, the work that they do. Um, when you start to think of like, okay, what are the expenses of this network? One way to think about that is these, these service providers, these people that are running the validators all over the world, that is sort of an expense to the network, right? So when a, when a user pays a transaction fee, um, they're paying, uh, you know, some of that fee to these validators, um, but also the network is paying the validators through inflation of the Ethereum token, right? So there's a, there's a sort of a subsidy to incentivize a global network of people to run that software. And the way that the Ethereum, you know, token economics work is that you have this like automatic buyback feature where as the system is being used, Used more and more, uh, more of that user fee is being burned, right? Some of it is accruing to the validators, but the yes. network actually burns some of that fee um, to offset the, the block subsidy inflation, right? Yeah. And so this is like really important for people to, to think through um, from a token economic perspective. But what the Ethereum network is now showing and we've seen this uh, for the first two quarters of 2023, is that as a network is used, it's actually burning more tokens than issuing through those block subsidies to, to the validators. So you actually have a deflating token supply, which anybody knows if you reduce the supply yeah. of a circulating asset, you have to increase the value of it. And so, you know, Warren Buffett loves stock, stock buybacks for this reason. <laughs> um, and the Ethereum network essentially has a, a stock buyback yeah. program that increases as the network becomes more popular, which is a very yeah. fascinating um, sort of uh, idea to explore. So yeah. look, I've got my own views about uh, Ethereum as a monetary asset. But I remember when Ethereum moved to proof of stake and they had this burning mechanism incorporated that uh, there were people that came up and started calling Ethereum ultrasound money. You remember that? Right, right. <laughs> Because of the burning mechanism, right? Um, because it looks like three when they when when the, when the network moved from proof of work to proof of stake, that yeah. you know they basically reduced the amount of um, new supply. Yeah. The block subsidy was reduced by almost eighty seven percent, and so when you look yeah. at that, it's almost like three Bitcoin halvings at once, and that's kind of where that so, ultrasound you know money meme came from. 
Um, but yeah, I just pulled up also just yeah. aside from like the financials, because Ethereum is an open network, other public blockchains are open networks. You have like this really, really rich data um, that analysts can, can look at and see like what's happening in terms of like monthly developers, what's happening uh, in terms of like the amount of value that is sitting within smart contracts, within DeFi, you know, how much gas uh, consumption, that's the, the consumption of the network. You know, what does that look like from cycle to cycle? So I've done a lot of analysis, just looking at, okay, the price behavior is one thing to look at, but we can also compare that to all of these like core operating and network KPIs and run correlation analysis to like, oh, okay, like as the number of developers increases, the amount of venture capital increases, the amount of users increases, what does that mean to the price of yep. the Ethereum token? Um, so that's some of the analysis that we we put into the framework uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, I know this episode is more on the deep dive of Ethereum and you know why it is uh, why it has got some investment merits. Yeah. But just coming back to the point that we just addressed, that Bitcoin being the number one cryptocurrency out there and Ethereum being the number two uh, because of its smart contract features, BlackRock with the hordes of investment analysts and researchers they've got and so much of influence and money they've got, they would not file an ETF application for a Ponzi asset. Like, right. that should just be a giveaway. Like, for all those other individuals all over the world who still think Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme, like, you can't be BlackRock research capabilities, you know? Sure, they were complacent and they couldn't see what Bitcoin was back when they used to make those comments about Bitcoin. But for them to admit and then now come back and file an ETF application speaks volume about that. They've done their research, they've given it time, and they've concluded that it's not a Ponzi asset. So I think that's a big endorsement right there. And I guess once that is filed, it's only a matter of time before Ethereum comes in. I agree. And, uh, you know, it's okay. Like a lot of people probably still look at Bitcoin and Ethereum and they don't understand what the what the purpose is. And that's why I want to get into some of this. But yes, and I haven't changed for people that have been following me and reading my writing. Like I haven't changed my thesis on, on Bitcoin. Yeah. I've, I've focused on Ethereum for this initial investment framework because Ethereum is a different Different. It, it has different yes. use cases. Um, it is not playing the same game as Ethereum, in my view. They are two different. Yeah. They're two different animals. Um, and I focused on Ethereum just because there's more cash flow there. It's easier for investors to kind of wrap their heads around that. But yeah. um, I couldn't agree with you more that um, everybody is going to capitulate on this idea that these are Ponzi schemes. That that is very clear to me. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, just on that, oh, when you spoke about it, I think this is a good opportunity for, for me to ask you that uh, w in your investment framework report that I read, I mean, you make a very good, compelling case for Ethereum's network effects and position as a natural monopoly. I've got my own theory, but uh, I'm keen to get your take on why you're confident that other L1 competitors won't be able to overcome Ethereum's lead in developers' infrastructure and standards. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and there are many people that will disagree with me on this. So let's just get that. Let's make that very clear. There's there's a, almost a religious fervor uh, within the crypto space. And so there are many other layer one networks, as you mentioned. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time just in the weeds of the data to just, you know, to get really into the weeds and then come out of it and say, OK, what's actually going on here? So the if you if you really kind of un unpeel the onion there what you'll see is that ethereum controls a roughly 80 percent market share and and that's i'm leaving bitcoin i'm bitcoin's yeah. off to the side of that i'm comparing ethereum to solana and avalanche and cardano yeah. and uh all these other layer ones um that have kind of come on you know those most of those other networks were launched in the 2016 2017 2018 yeah. era after ethereum um, and what you tend to get with like network technologies is they do become natural monopolies. And I'm going to pull up my screen here just to get into this. Okay, so just like getting into these network effects, I think the first principle to really understand is open networks triumph closed networks. Like, I think it's helpful to think of Ethereum uh, in the same way that somebody would think about the internet. And you can apply, again, you can apply that to if your favorite, you know, ecosystem is Avalanche or Solana, like, like those could be the internets as well. Uh, but the idea here is that we only really need one of these things. Uh, we don't need, you know, there's many, 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 you know, layer one blockchains, many crypto projects, but you really only need one sort of internet for for crypto and, and crypto is really i think the way to think of this is you're just adding like a data layer to the internet 
uh, and we'll, we can get into that concept a little bit more. But the key thing is that open networks triumph closed networks. Uh, the internet is a system of protocols that connect 8 billion people. And uh, when you kind of get into Metcalf's law, what, what that basically states is that uh, the value of a network is equal to the square of the connected users on yep. that network. And so once something starts to hit uh, right. escape velocity, yeah. uh, it just be, it, it just gets cheaper and cheaper to use that system. You end up with a system of standards, right? The standards on Ethereum are the programming languages. They're the, they're the token standards, ERC-20, ERC-721. They are the developer tooling, right? It's the number of developers. It's the amount of venture capital that has chased those developers uh, that are now building applications which have brought in users, right? Which have led to more adoption of various wallets, which is another standard, right? Connecting to the, the base layer standards within the, within the tech stack. And so you can sort of see that like, you know, Ethereum has over 100 million non-zero wallet addresses. Right. Dude. This is like double what Bitcoin has. Um, and it's, you know, orders of magnitude higher than any other uh, of the competitors. So you can see that there's there's something deep going on. And it's because of this like really hardened infrastructure that is already in place within the network that 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 is what is attracting more developers there because you have that those standards and they can come in and there's tooling, there's an ecosystem, there's people they can talk to. So that just drives rapid innovation. And then because this is open source technology, uh, you have this, this idea of composability, which is really like a developers having the ability to just kind of stack computer code on top of each other, right? This is all open source. It's in the, it's in the open. You solve one problem once, some other entrepreneur takes takes your solution and adds yeah. it on to their solution. And yeah. so you get this rapid innovation because of this idea of open source, open network. Uh, it just drives rapid innovation. So this is all playing out uh, within Ethereum. I don't want to, I'm not going to say that there's only going to be one of these. Like I actually think that I've written about Solana. I think there is space for, um, for different architectures, right? Solana is a monolithic blockchain. So it does have a different architecture. Um, and there may be use cases that can be applied to that architecture that that aren't best suited for Ethereum. Um, but that that's like one network I would say has, you know, a really strong community and has, has a network effect to itself and potentially different use cases. But that's because Solana is is properly differentiated from Ethereum. Um, so that's kind of how I would think of that. And then, you know, typically when you go through history, the the giant does emerge in the first 10 years uh, of a new of a new technology. Um, and so Ethereum has been around for eight years now. Uh, when, you, when you line that up with everything I just mentioned with the network effects, it uh, looks pretty good. And then the other piece of this is like, we will continue to see uh, probably other layer one blockchains. And, and maybe we've, we're done with like new ones getting funded by, v, by VCs, but they will come out and they'll say, we're faster. We have cheaper, you know, Settlement That's finality. What they say. Before Ethereum came and there was Bitcoin, you know, there were all kinds of Bitcoin forks that were created that either said that, oh, you can mine more than 21 million Bitcoins, uh, 21 million of their proof of work coins, or they yep. used to say that we are faster. Well, you're faster because most of your nodes are centralized. And yeah, once Ethereum came in, then there was EOS that was supposed to be the Ethereum killer because it was faster. Right. Then there was Cardano, which still has got an insane fall following despite mm -hmm. producing nothing of, of worthy for the last right. six years of, since their launch same can be said for Polkadot as well like it's been a while and we still haven't seen anything of worthiness from Polkadot ecosystem as well about your point about VC money I mean we know what happened with Aptos the less I say the better but yeah they marketed themselves as uh, you know of a smart contract blockchain with 100,000 transactions per second and I remember when they launched their mainnet it was like in single digits if I remember correctly Nowhere near yeah. the 100,000. So yeah, you're spot on on that. All these other layer one blockchains are going to come with new marketing tactics so they are going to be faster or new proof of stake consensus system that is more environmental friendly and more decentralized. Yeah, and, and, and I couldn't agree more. Like you're going to, we may continue to see this, right? And and I get it. Like there are incentives for an entrepreneur. If VCs are going to throw money at these things, then you're you're creating an incentive structure where entrepreneurs are going to do it, right? So I, I don't blame people for, for doing that. But, um, and, and many of these probably do have better technology, right? That's actually mm -hmm. like, like kind of interesting to me is like some of these actually will come out and they'll, they'll actually have better features and they'll say, look at me, I, I solved this problem that couldn't be solved on Ethereum. And, 
The truth is that good enough, good enough technology wins because of Moore's law. You know, people will complain that Ethereum is slow and it's it's not scaling and it's expensive. But what what they're missing is Moore's law is a, is playing out on Ethereum, and we're seeing this with with the the roadmap being executed on. So now we have this. You know, you create a problem because there's so much demand to use Ethereum, right? This is a this is a feature, not a bug. The high prices on Ethereum are a feature, not a bug, because there's tons of demand to use that network. Yeah. So that creates an incentive for entrepreneurs to come in and build solutions. On top of that, this is Moore's law playing out, right? So now we've increased the amount of block space available within the ecosystem because we now have all these layer twos. Uh, mm -hmm. And so now that thing that you said was special, that this other layer one that you launched was special, it's actually not because we have the scalability on Ethereum, plus you're connected to this this vibrant ecosystem and this and all the other network effects and all the other users and all the other infrastructure that's on Ethereum. So that, so once you hit escape velocity, that just compounds on itself. And and the work that I've been doing is to figure out, has that already happened uh, on Ethereum? So yeah, I will pause there, but that's sort of the net, this is sort of how network effects play yeah. out uh, in technology. And I think it's happening uh, in crypto right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what role, and I would love for you to just go deep dive as to what do you think the role of layer two is gonna be then? The Ethereum layer two blockchains, uh, while Ethereum, maintains decentralization or you expect layer two blockchains to also be decentralized or you think uh, they'll be centralized and ethereum is going to be the decentralized settlement network i think there's going to be a combination of all this let me uh, actually pull up here what what i have for layer twos okay so yeah great question on on layer twos and sort of the i guess the, the, the thesis that i have and, and you're start you're actually starting to see this play out a little bit um, is some of the alternative layer one networks. Uh, Celo is one that just did this, has now pivoted to becoming a layer two for Ethereum. Uh, and so just to sort of peel back for people, like layer twos are separate blockchains that uh, are essentially like introducing this execution layer on top of Ethereum. And Ethereum ends up being the, the base settlement layer that uh, keeps track of, of all activity that's occurring on top of it. And so the, the layer two execution layer is essentially providing services for the, the user interface level, the application layer, and, and allowing transaction throughput to increase, lowering costs, and just allowing entrepreneurs to build things that they wouldn't have been able to build on the layer one because of uh, constraints with, with just the scalability and the throughput of, of the L1. Um, and so as you start to kind of, you know, map out, like, what does this mean for value accrual through the tech stack, um, the network effect, et cetera, what I, the, the sort of an investment framework, I guess, that I think about here is like the layer two um, and the application layer are probably going to see uh, less value, right? So I think actually you're going to have more value in total on, on these layer ones. I have four here. You know, I don't know if there's going to be four. I think Bitcoin and Ethereum are clearly here for a very, very long time. As I mentioned, Solana is the only other one that I've actually written about and I think has some staying power. Maybe there's like another one and then maybe you have like a, a longer tail that just have less, less uh, value in the long run. Um, but you're going to have probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of layer twos. Uh, and those will all just anchor all their data to to Ethereum. So you could have a layer two. Like, again, I want people to think of this as like Ethereum is almost like the internet. And you can have a layer two that actually has geographic constraints to it, right? You could have a layer two that mostly services, uh, you know, maybe China or Korea, or there's like certain business use cases, and there's there's privacy, and there's um, KYC AML within a layer two. And so that thing, that layer two has different use cases than another one that doesn't have those features. So I think one like mental model that people can can think of, um, if you want to kind of hone it in a little bit, is like the layer one is almost like, let's call it the United States. And then the layer twos are all the states on top. So the, so the layer one's like the federal government. And then you have all of these states on top of it. And they have their own cultures. They, they have different uh, things. And people travel to those areas or live in those areas for, for various features. But they're all connected to the federal government at the at the base layer, um, and so that's sort of the I think the the, the mental model that I see yeah. uh, you know, playing out here, kind of over the long run. And in terms of like value accrual, there will probably be more value on the layer one. It, but that doesn't mean there's no, there's more returns on the layer one, right? So the, there will probably be actually be more returns on the layer twos and the applications because 
we're very early on those, right? The layer ones have pretty large network, uh, pretty large market values already. I think they're going to go much, much higher, but um, there might be like higher returns, you know, on the applications above above the layer one. Just on that, while you have, I, I think this is a good visual representation to explain the interplay between decentralized applications, uh, layer twos and layer ones. And it reminds me of the famous fat protocol thesis, uh, yep. which I think you also believe in it. I do. Let me pull, let me pull up the visual here as yeah. well. This is another uh, really good just meta model visual for people to have. Um, so the FAT protocol thesis is essentially saying like, if you look at web two, you, we have these, when we think of the internet protocols, um, that is what everything got built on, right? So you have TCP, IP, you have HTTP, you have SMTP for email. These are like protocols that, uh, entrepreneurs built applications on top of, uh, now most of the value in web two accrued to the applications, right? It accrued to Microsoft and uh, Google yes. and Facebook. And these are the applications that just tapped into those protocols. And then yeah. by tapping in, you can reach 8 billion people globally. Uh, the, the, the the difference with web two is those protocols were funded by uh, like government grants. There was no, we, we didn't have public blockchains at, at the time. And so there's no way for somebody to monetize the internet, right? You can't own a piece of TCP IP. There's nothing, yep. there's nothing to own. So they're sort of like public goods that were funded with government dollars, uh, with government grants, um, and all the value accrued to the application layer. Now with Web3, again, coming back to like Ethereum can be thought of similarly to like the internet. These are, these are open protocols that connect 8 billion people but the difference this time is you can own that protocol, you know, via these crypto assets. And that's one of the, you know, kind of breakthroughs in computer science that public blockchains enable. And that's like user controlled data is how I think of like crypto assets. You can self custody, you know, data. Um, and because of this, like the value is sort of flipping to these protocols because they have massive, massive network effects. The, the network effect accrues to the protocol, not the application. And in, in Web3, the application's tapping into that protocol, but at the end of the day, the user can easily switch to a new application because they're all tapped into the same protocol. An example of this is DeFi, right? Anybody who's used DeFi knows that when you go to Uniswap, you just plug it, you just, you sign in with your wallet, right? So what you're doing there is you're just connecting your wallet, which is you on the open protocol to an application. If you decide that Uniswap is charging too much on their fees, or you don't like the user experience, you just disconnect your wallet and then you connect it to Compound's website or, or maybe SushiSwap or another another DEX. Uh, what you're doing there is you're just, you just switched from TD, you know, you just switched from TD Bank to, uh, yeah. you know, Ameritrade or something um, or some other, you know, brokerage or you switch from Bank of America to Citibank and, you know, by going from Compound to, to Aave. And uh, that's, that's, that's a really powerful thing. The network effect accrues to the protocol and the value should also accrue to the protocol because now we have crypto assets and a way to monetize these. So this is like kind of a, a framework that I, I like to talk about as well. Sure. Look, just on that, what I'm keen to get your take on is that I'm not sure whether you're familiar with this, uh, this uh, theory that Boston Consulting Group, BCG, came up with, and it's called the rule of three. And what it suggests is that regardless of an industry or you can also also say it in the form of uh, creative arts as well, in terms of creator ecosystem, whether there's actors or directors, is that given 10, 15 years of time, an industry matures enough that three or four players capture 80 to 90% of the market. So that's what the rule of three framework theory of Boston Consulting Group that they came up in early 1970s dictates. Given that knowledge and theory, would you say that uh, when it comes to applying that framework to Words layer one blockchain, Bitcoin, Ethereum, two of them, it's uh, quite evident, at least for the foreseeable future, that those two will continue to remain as the top two layer one blockchains. And then for the other two, if we go by the rule of three and four, we're waiting to see what it could be, Solana or others, but Bitcoin and Ethereum are there. What I'm keen to get your take on is that, do you see the same rule of three to be applicable for layer two blockchains as well? And if yes, what are those layer two blockchains for Ethereum that uh, you think have already established themselves being part of that rule of three. That's super interesting. I like that. I've never, I haven't seen that framework. Uh, I like it. 
Um, and yeah, so I, I, this is my, like how I'm thinking about layer twos right now is you have a few large sort of generalized layer twos and that's like optimism, Arbitrum, uh, Polygon as a side chain. And, uh, you know, if you look at like the OP stack and what's happening there is you almost see like an ecosystem, uh, and like a launch pad for other L2s. So an example is Coinbase. Um, they are leveraging, they launched an L2 called yeah. Base. They are leveraging the OP stack, right? So yeah. that's going to be within Optimism. Um, you know, this is, these concepts are still pretty early and we're still trying to figure out the like business models and how, yeah. how that's going to play out, how these, cause these, you mentioned earlier, like they're, uh, they're pretty centralized. The sequencers yeah. are centralized. They all plan to decentralize and, you know, everything in blockchain has to start centralized. Even Bitcoin started with just yeah. one or two people mining it and they have yeah. to sort of decentralize over time. Yeah. Um, and there are solutions coming to the market that are helping them to decentralize. Like there's, there's a thing called Espresso, which is helping yeah. you know, L2s decentralize. But yeah, I think you're gonna have a couple large, you know, generalized layer twos, and then you'll have specific L2s that offer different features for different use cases. And then you'll actually also have app-specific app L2s. So, you know, they're just app specific blockchains themselves. It's one use case. They want to control the entire tech stack. Um, I think you're going to have that as well. And those will be more centralized. Uh, but again, everything's connected to the sort of Ethereum settlement layer um, at, at the bottom of all of this. Got it. Yep. Just quickly, what do you think about Cosmos as a chain bin? Because they are building on the thesis of them and other blockchains are also there that believe that all these blockchains need to talk to each other and build an interoperable blockchain. So what is your take on Cosmos? Yeah, so Cosmos is... Uh, I, th that roadmap to me is just colliding with Ethereum. So I see what this Cosmos ecosystem and having like a shared settlement layer and all of these various, you know, blockchains like that to me is just playing out on L2 on on Ethereum. Sure. So that that thesis, that vision to me is like the same thing as what's going to play out on Ethereum. So then it's like, OK, you know, is that network as secure as Ethereum? Does it have strong network effects? Yeah. Does the architecture really make sense? Yeah. Are we going to see, you know, different applications move over there? I'm watching that. There was, you know, DYDX did move over to um, to the Cosmos ecosystem because they want to control the entire yeah. tech stack. But I think you're going to have those opportunities on Ethereum as well. There's going to be people that build that um, and allow people to have you know full control. Sure. Um, so yeah, I know it's an it's an interesting ecosystem. There's some interesting stuff there. A lot of people are interested in Cosmos, but I sort of just think that that's going to play out in the L2 ecosystem with sure. Ethereum serving as the base settlement. Okay. And maybe Ethereum serves as settlement for Cosmos apps as well. Sure. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. So look, I think we've covered a lot of detailed stuff already regarding the investment framework, but I've read the full 74 page report because uh, I wanted to give you the feedback and uh, I thought that it's filled with insights and on-chain data to, you know, endorse those insights. I'm keen to know as to what was the ideal audience you had in mind when you were writing this? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the question. I think... Um... The problem that I'm trying to solve with this is the problem that I dealt with. And I think almost everybody that's been pretty early to this space has dealt with. And that's just like finding uh, trusted resources, yeah. trusted analysis and, and like one place to go. Right. So I have I can't tell you how many bookmarks I have of you know, YouTube channels that I'm watching and sub stacks that I'm reading and Twitter accounts that I'm following and people on LinkedIn that I follow and, um, you know, VC blogs that I'm reading. And, and then you go on Twitter and there's a lot of anonymous accounts yeah. and it's hard to trust. I remember when I first got involved and I was just trying to figure out like, where is there a wallet? What wallet can I trust? Cause you think you're, you think sure. you're being scammed every around every corner yeah, in crypto sure. and in, in many cases you are. Um, and so there's, there's just, um, there's, there's a lot of like gaps you can fall into. What yeah. I'm trying to do is just be a trusted resource, solve this problem and say, hey, you know, I'm combining 15 years of experience in business, um, three years, like really deep diving uh, crypto using all these applications. I think one of the cool things with um, crypto is you can use, it's all permissionless, so you can use all these things. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I'm just combining all of that, you know, working with these data providers and, and, and putting this out there really for, you know, it's almost like a crypto curious investor, you know, can, can get a lot from this. If you invest in traditional assets and you want a framework that follows cash flows for crypto, um, you know, you're going to learn something here. If you're like a registered investment advisor and your clients are asking you about crypto and you want like one document that can like really help you understand that and then articulate properly to your clients, I think this is a great resource. Um, venture capitalists, you know, hedge funds, anybody who's starting to like move into this space, um, they need a framework. They need a, a, a high level view of what's going on and then also get into the weeds of the network effects, the data, um, the financials, the cash flows um, to be able to wrap their heads around what's going on here. Um, and then content creators, educators, anybody who's trying to teach others about what's going on here, I think this is a this is a good resource. Um, so I think those are some of the primary candidates yeah. that will get value from the Ethereum uh, investment framework. Um, so that's really who I made it for. But the problem that I'm trying to solve is just to reduce the amount of time that people spend trying to get a good, good, good information, and then just a trusted resource that's giving you the data uh, behind everything that I that I state. Yes, yeah. I just want to go on record and say that this is not a promotion. I'm not getting paid for this. Michael yeah. is not paying me anything for this. But this is a promotion nevertheless because Michael is a friend and uh, I have read the report. Uh, he gave me a week ago when it was drafted and uh, I thought it was a great piece of work. He put in a lot of effort in it and I told him that I've loved what you have uh, created over here and if there's any way that I can support it, uh, then I would. Uh, so that's why I'm doing it. Although I wouldn't mind if you post me that cabinet. <laughs> We'll get you one of these. We'll get you one. Uh, they're, they're coming. We'll get the cool. store. We'll get the little the little web store up at some point here. <laughs> We're going to get a Shopify store and put some Ethereum NFTs as well. <laughs> yeah. Think about it. Yeah. Well, that's that's actually a direction I'm probably going to go with this. So, yeah. I, the you know, for, for people that are interested in this, I'm creating a membership model here. So yeah. it's going to be updated on a quarterly basis. And something that I'm looking into is actually creating NFTs out of this um, and yes. actually Love showing it. like, okay, let's mint NFTs. And then you well, have like the original of these frameworks. But yeah, if you sign up, um, you're going to get a quarterly report for the next two yeah. years, updating yeah. uh, the data as the ecosystem grows, as as yeah. um, new use cases come in. Um, yeah. You're going you're gonna to be part of that membership. So yeah, that's amazing. Now, look, this final question is for my students who WhatsApp me, send me messages avidly asking me about views about what's happening and all. So for newcomers to the space, what are the one to two key takeaways you hope they grasp after reading your framework? And what advice would you give them on how to think about crypto as an investment? And I know this is purely for educational purposes, not a financial advice, but yeah, keen for my students to get some take from you? It's a great question and there's a million different angles I could go on this. I'm going to focus on, there's two fundamental problems to me that are being solved by, by blockchains. And this is, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges people have when they stare at it and they're trying to understand like, what is this thing? Um, and, you know, you could say this about the internet and, and many like sort of, you know, really big concepts and trying to break things down. What, what are the takeaways? But to me, public blockchains are solving two massive problems. The first one is the lack of a global shared database. And this is kind of like the accounting side of it for me. Um, you know, the idea of having like a global database that's recording the economic activity of all the applications on top of it is just an incredibly powerful idea. And like the internet is like this incredible thing. It's these open protocols that have allowed entrepreneurs to build these amazing applications on top of it that's made everybody's life uh, so much, so much better. And but but the challenge with the internet today is that there is no shared database to record the state of all those users across time. And so we're mm -hmm. using proprietary databases to do that, right? So if Facebook has a proprietary database, and if you do anything on Facebook, they're tracking all of your clicks in, and this is happening with cookies, right? That's how we're solving this today is with cookies. Yeah. Public blockchains completely change this, right? The internet, the, every, almost every business model of the internet is advertising today because that yeah. is how you monetize databases, proprietary yeah. data. So when you, when you change that and you create a database that's secure, that all these applications can build off of and the users can control their data with digital wallets, um, I believe that is going to 
over time essentially transform every business model on the internet, mm. you know, because you've completely changed the data structure of the internet. So that's that's like the, the first thing, and that's pretty abstract, and we could probably have a whole podcast yeah. going into that. Sure. Um, the other piece of it is the introduction of digital property rights to the internet, right? So because we don't have a shared database, uh, users can't control their data, right? We, we, we spend all our time on the internet, we're clicking around everywhere, um, but we can't control that data. With, um, with crypto, we're introducing digital property rights and this is really like the introduction of digital wallets that then control access to data, right? So sure. if you have a if you have a wallet, you have a wallet address, and that's pointing to the crypto assets that are sitting in your wallet. You you control that data. Mm -hmm. um, you can send that data to somebody else, and now they have they have the assets. So an example of this is like so the Ethereum investment framework is a PDF document. So yeah. if I send that PDF document to you, Shiv, no. you have the document now, um, but I also have the document. So we both have it. So, yes. but that, let's say that's an NFT. This is the concept of digital property rights. If it's an NFT and I send you an NFT, now you have the NFT and I don't have it. True. So. So yes, you can make a copy of that NFT or whatever and, and, and copy it, but you don't have the you original. Save, you can save as, same as picture. I'm joking. A lot of yep, people- Exactly. Right-click, save as, exactly. Yeah. And, and you can do that. Um, but this is the concept of digital yeah. property rights. And, you know, it, it's important, again, to like zoom out on history and like sure. like the, the breakthrough of like the modern economy was like the ability to control land, right? Yeah. So once you can control land and you have clear title to land, then mm -hmm. people can, can um, you know, leverage that, right? Now you can take out a loan against your land. You can start a business and you can start to financialize uh, the economy, this same concept is going to play out on public blockchains because we can now create ownership of data yes. on the internet. So that's like Web3. People talk about this a lot. Um, it's the introduction of ownership to to the internet. And I call it digital property rights. But yeah. those these are the two concepts I people really need to sort of study and get into this because it's going to change um, the structure of the internet over, over a long period of time. Yeah. So I yeah. just want to quickly summarize that digital property right point. Get Giving Michael's next work of 100 odd pages, whenever he creates the next investment framework, that he's going to drop it as an NFT. It's, it's going to be called whatever the framework is going to be. They're going to drop NFTs, first 50 of them. And those first 50 NFT holders for that particular framework report are going to get some special capabilities for your community. Now, nobody can duplicate those 50. If you drop those 50 NFTs and the people who mint it, the first first come, first spaces, first 50 people who mint it, they hold those NFT. Even if you right-click save as the joke that I said in between, I just want to point yeah. it out. It's not going to make a difference because it's stored on a public blockchain and only those 50 individuals who got it on their wallet have the ability to secure special rights. Uh, not those people who have right-clicked and saved as those NFTs. So yeah, your point about digital property rights, we can do an entire podcast episode to do a deep dive on it to explain to people what it means and why we say that these public blockchains are of importance. And I think you, you did a great job within this episode to speak about that as well as the investment marriage of uh, Ethereum. However, just a big shout out that, that uh, none of this is financial advice. This is purely for educational purposes. And uh, even the investment framework that Michael has created is not to be considered as a financial advice. It's purely for informational and educational purposes purposes as well. So Michael, anything else that you want to talk about regarding the investment framework? I think that's it. Like, you know, I think just the, the takeaways for people is like, I, tr I created this as a document that can be clicked. I don't want people to feel like it's a book. It's like, it, it's, it's kind of structured by sections and you can click through yeah. each section and kind of spend some time with it, study the data, you know, ask questions, ask me questions, reach out. I plan on making it better each quarter as well, but um, we're recording this on a Friday, but it's going to, it's going to go live on January, July 31st. Um, and we'll put a link, you know, in the ship, in the show notes uh, as well for that. But um, thanks for having me on. I love talking about this stuff. We can go much deeper into, into many areas of this, but um, thanks for having me on and asking uh, a lot of awesome questions as usual. It's entirely my pleasure, man. Yeah. And, you know, I love to have you have this discussion and we can have a seven hour podcast if we have the time <laughs> to just do a deep dive on a whole lot of blockchain related topics. But I think this was a great follow up to the conversation that we had last week. And it's quite worthy that uh, Ethereum, which kind of revolutionized and is still will continue to revolutionize Internet and Internet based businesses. So thanks a lot for you for creating this framework and uh, taking out the time to discuss this on the Proof of Work podcast as well for everybody out 
out there, do check out Michael's Substack, the DeFi report. Great writing. Been a fan of his work for the last many years. This Ethereum investment framework. You got to definitely check it out as well. It's an impeccable piece of analytical work. 74 pages, every page full of insight. You're going to love it. And uh, hopefully I'll get the, the DeFi report uh, capped soon as well. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get you. It's a, it'll be in the mail tomorrow. <laughs>